Hi, I'm Cesar Rubio, and this is Masonic Muscle. This is episode five. Where did Masonic usage come from? And a brief disclaimer before we begin, once again, is this a professionally researched and properly vetted? Hell no. These are my own speculations and at times rantings. But I do think that somewhere deep inside of many Masons, you all have that good feeling that this is much older than what we are being told. None of these uh, philosophies, ideas, or uh, you know, theories I'm putting out are sanctioned by Grand Lodge of California or any other Grand Lodge of the United States. These theories and rantings and ravings are my own. And whenever I begin to interview other people, be they Masons or not, those will also be their rantings and ravings and their ideas and philosophies and what they believe. So moving forward for this episode, let's get into the physical muscle first. Yeah, let's get into the that aspect so it doesn't get lost. You're talking about Masonic muscle. And I'm trying, and my hope is to really motivate a lot of you men out there, Masons out there, to get out there and exercise. I've said it before, I'll say it again. This pandemic has kept too many of us inside of the house. And because of that, we tend to just sit around and eat, uh, lay down, eat again maybe watch some Netflix, but nowhere in there was there any kind of real physical activity. Get out there into your garage where all of your weight equipment is at. Uh, get out and walk around and do some, uh, you know, do some wind sprints, do something, right? We stayed in the house too long. So get out there. And because of that, I want to talk about exercise. So here we go. The building up of your pillars in exercise is foundational to build tremendous strength. What am I talking about? I'm talking about your legs. The legs are every man's pillars. And no man who weightlifts is not building true power if they don't work their legs. These are foundational and all the old school strongmen worked their legs in some way and considered it an essential part of their routines. Some of them solely worked their legs with a squat or a deadlift. I mean, they, they, were, they were fanatical about their squats and deadlifts. That's all they wanted to do. And then maybe if they wanted to, you know, add in something, they would add in a, a military, study military press or a pull-up. That's it. They kept it very simple. These, these men called it physical culture. And they were doing it for health reasons. They were not doing it back then. I'm talking about the early, like 1900, so about the 1940s. They weren't not necessarily doing it for aesthetic reasons, you know, how they were going to look. That was a byproduct to them. What they wanted was greater health, more stamina, and uh, to, to keep a youthful look and feel because of the, the work environment that they were involved in. A lot of them still work eight, 10, 12 hours a day, every day. And then they still came home and worked out for about an hour. And uh, these types of routines 
are called abbreviated routines. And they were championed by a man, uh, by men, I'm sorry, like uh, Piri Raider, who took over Iron Man magazine way back in 1940. And in that magazine, he tells a story about how he was a weakling, he was sickly, he couldn't gain any weight, and he was fed up. So I, I don't know how he got a hold of some weights, but he began squatting. And he talks about his transformation that took place over that year where he gained like over 20, 30 pounds just squatting and, and you know, some push-ups, pull-ups, rows, and compound movements, and then eating healthily, you know, eating the, because back then there, there wasn't, I don't think there was a lot of junk food. So whatever they had, you know, uh, natural cow's milk and stuff like that. And they even went as far as creating the 20 rep squat milk, milk and squat routine. That's what they called it. Where obviously from what it sounds like, you know, the, the main exercise was 20 rep squats, breathing squats. And then once you were done with that, you know, you might've done a couple of more exercises, but you would drink plenty of milk. Now, this is before these milks were being treated with all the chemicals and drugs that they're being treated. And they guess they theorized correctly that cow's milk had plenty of protein, carbohydrates, and all these minerals that they needed in order for them to bulk up. And so you would see them drinking milk everywhere. And these people, these, uh, these old-time strongmen, they stuck to the basics of simple compound exercises. And they would progressively add resistance. And then add that, you know, good nutrition to that. And then plenty of rest. It was that simple for them. And when they did it, you would see the results. The results are incredible. If you ever find these pictures of these old times strongmen, you will be shocked at the transformations that they were able to achieve. This is pre-steroids. This is pre supplements there weren't a lot of protein powders out there weren't any of that they just went off raw effort and then whatever foods they had around them but what was plentiful around them was raw cow's milk and it wasn't until later in the 1950s that men began using steroids and got enamored with the bench press that physical culture changed and moved away from what was working it still works today and these men began to work to go for the bigger is better. And if my muscles are bigger, then I have to be healthier. That was kind of the idea, which we now know is not a healthy way to gain muscles, taking steroids and all these drugs that go with it. But something similar happened to Freemasonry. Sometime after World War II, after the soldiers came home and begun to flood back into the Masonic lodges, they somehow got away from what used to work within a lodge. These men also believe that if we have more members, then Freemasonry can only get bigger, better, and healthier. The mystique, the mysteriousness slowly ebbed away from the lodge. They began to want to open the doors to everyone that was interested. And it didn't take long for the standard to get lowered. These Masons also believe that if we have more members, then Freemasonry can only get bigger, better, and healthier, like I said earlier. During these early 1900s, all the way up until about 1930 that I can really think of, 
there was this explosion of Masonic educational material that really pushed the boundaries of what we knew about Freemasonry's origins, history, and symbols. And maybe to a lot of you Masons, shock and surprise and non-Masons, many of these documents were extremely esoteric and mystical. One of these symbols that they would really get into and dig into that was slowly but surely swept under the rug and talked down upon was the skull and bones. There were Masons who were afraid that the public would consider this symbol in a negative light and therefore think that Masonry was involved in something sinister or evil. Many Masons refused to study the symbol and its true meaning. And maybe they were beginning to succumb to the social pressures to conform to stop being so different. And even now, in many Grand Lodges, the Grand Lodge will issue edicts, a Grand Master, that you cannot use a skull and bones as one of the symbols, you know, just stay away from it. The public's going to get the wrong impression. So we're still under that that idea in many states and many jurisdictions around the United States. So keep that in mind. In three of the five episodes, we have been talking about the 1390 Regis Manuscript, the Benedictine, Cistercian, and Templar monks. All right, so that, that was 1390. And you can even go back, you know, 100, 200 years from that point. But I'm going to take you back even further. Because when you're talking about the Benedictine, Cistercian, and Templar monks, you're talking about Roman Catholicism and ultimately Rome. But in 79 AD, almost 500 years before the Regis manuscript was ever written or began to be written, in the city of Pompeii, there was a society of Roman artificers that went by the name of Comachine Masters or the Comachine Masters, however you want to pronounce it. Either way, I think I'm butchering it. This city was under ash for 1,800 years. When it got discovered in the 1800s and archaeologists began to dig up its remains, they found what looked like a Masonic lodge. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's things that we would recognize would be inside of a Masonic Lodge. It had two pillars, which is recognizable in Freemasonry. And we talked about those earlier in the show about the two pillars of man being their legs. It had two pillars with interlaced triangles forming the Star of David, even though, you know, the they those Romans would not be, you know, having the religion of David. They would not be practicing the religion of David. They had a checkered floor, the square, compass, level, common gavel, and wait for it, a skull. The skull is a symbol of death and how we must always remember that we too will die. Memento mori is something you will hear a lot uh, in the like Stoic philosophy and memento mori is, remember, you will die. And remember, you will die was the idea behind the skull and crossbones of the Masons, the skull and crossbones of the pirates, you know, the, all these 
all these different organizations that you see use that. Some of it use it for sinister reasons, but in Freemasonry, it was more to help us uh, to help keep in mind that we're all headed towards something that is inevitable and to live a good life. And no Mason should fear this symbol. And if you go to the Catholic missions down the coast of California, the majority had a cemetery. And at the entrance, there is a skull and crossbones to the cemetery. That's at, that's at the entrance to the cemetery. This symbol was not evil. That's not why it was put there. It was meant to remind us that this is a place where our fallen brothers and sisters have been laid to rest. That's what it means. And it might have some other deeper meanings, but it's not sinister as a lot of people would imagine. So Pompeii, 779 AD, they found all these symbols that we can, as Masons, immediately recognize. We still use them today. And, and this possibly can push back the origins of Freemason to the Roman Empire. Uh, the beginnings of the Catholic Church down to 534 AD, the time of St. Benedict, who may or may not have ever founded the order named after him, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia. Because we're, we're, we are getting into the origins of Freemasonry, and this is what we've been talking about so far. We've been keeping a tight, little tight, little niche to try and get to some better understanding of the origins of Freemasonry. Not that this is right or wrong or scholarly or, you know, vetted or anything like that. No, let us freely speculate. Let us get down and be able to contemplate some of these ideas and some of these discoveries that have been made and how can they possibly fit into this jigsaw puzzle. We can maybe stretch it back a few hundred years or maybe not. But for whatever reason, there are strong connections from the Comanchean masters to the Freemasons. There are. And many authorities, you know, will agree to that. But then they'll just discard them and say, you know, until we have more evidence, then that's as far as we can go with it. If there were a connection and people accepted this as fact, and let's just say that was a fact, it's yeah. And yeah, they were Freemasonry is connected to the Kumasin masters that, uh, you know, Pompeii and before, because I think they were around for a long time, helping the Roman Empire build all their stately edifices and, and cathedrals, temples, building their bridges, building their roads, all of that. If that was a fact, then we would have to deal with the fact that the main religion of that time was Mithraism. It was in direct competition with Christianity, but Mithraism was the main one as well. And if that happens, then Freemasons would be accused of being followed followers of Mithra. And we wouldn't want that now, would we? I mean, Freemasons are accused of all kinds of other things. And now here's one more thing that you're going to be accused of, and that is being followers of Mithra. That connection is possibly uh, too clean. So we must muddy it up a little in order to continue our story. There's, as of right now, there's too many Roman connections. Too many. And the next thing you're going to tell me is that Freemasonry had some kind of connection to the mafia. 
like the author John Dickey's book, How the Masons Made the Modern World, where the author talks about that the Sicilian Mafia owe their origins to Freemasonry. <laughs> what the hell? And that could be true. I haven't read the book. You know, I'm aware of it. But I'm just talking about some monks, and this guy is talking about the mafia, right? <laughs> and so I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. This sort of discussion is sorely needed, not just here, but within the lodge wall so that members get a true education and understanding. Not only that, but everybody. Everybody gets a true education and understanding. But wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be cool that within the lodge walls we had this type of steady and focused education? on the origins history and symbolism of freemasonry and it just wasn't bouncing around or, or everywhere that it was just extremely focused like this it, it would take years yeah but the masons and the, the members that that would uh you know that are a part of it and the people that were, are thinking of joining that's what kind of education they would get that would be something according to albert moreno this is the author I mentioned at the beginning of this these podcasts and the book that I'm that I'm referring to a lot right now. According to him, the ritual facet of the Cistercians that is most interesting to us speculative masons is the ceremony of profession which which has also been perpetuated by the Masonic initiation ceremony. This is how the Cistercians broke it down. Number one, petition of the recipient who is going to profess or be initiated. Homily, number two, it's the homily. This part has no place in Masonic ritual. Number three, examination of the candidate. Number four, intercession of the faithful or participation of the brethren. Number five, monastic profession or Masonic obligation. Promesio. Number six, Transformation of the vows into a binding act. Petition. Number seven. Renunciation of goods or Masonic charity test. Number eight. Imposition of the cowl or Masonic apron. And number nine. The recipient is led to his seat. The Masonic orders were dissolved in England between 1536 and 1540. Then the Anglican and Calvinistic philosophies began to influence the old charges and little subtle changes began to appear in the ceremony to make fellow craft masons. According to Freemasonry for Beginners by Robert Lomas, the first written, uh, the first written records uh, to a lodge of masons appears in, in the records of the Aberdeen Borough Council on June 27th 1483. According to the entry, the council decided that David Menzies, the master of church work, would be appointed master of the Masons of the Lodge. The Lodge of Aberdeen created drawings of the ancient symbols still employed in Masonic teachings today. You're talking about 1480, guys. And whoever these members were, they drew symbols on a floor cloth. The symbols were depicted on a decorated canvas carpet known as a floor cloth. It was laid in the center of the lodge so the mason could walk a ritual path of pilgrimage through the symbols. This floor cloth 
is known as the Kirkwall Scroll and is the oldest of its kind. But this was in Scotland. That part was in Scotland. We've been talking about England this whole time. Now we're going to Scotland, where obviously the stone stonemason guilds were operating there as well, as well as in Ireland. So you had these in England, Scotland, and Ireland. You had stonemasons guilds working because it's obvious when you read about those countries and then you see pictures and you're talking about that those eras you're going to see you're going to see the cathedrals you're going to see the monasteries you're going to see the castles that were built during that time and so it was these stonemasons guilds that were employing and and um, training other young men to become masons fellow craft masons they, they would be called once you once you went through your training of seven years they would perform this ritual for you and in that ritual you would officially become a fellow craft mason these are the rituals that are being talked about in these books and that i've been briefly discussing right because somewhere along the line someone created these rituals and these rituals have been adopted or have been continued by the masons of today in some way shape or form all around the world they're practicing these rituals and it seems like they were actually used to make, introduce the entered apprentice mason to the fraternity of stonemasons. And he became a fellow craft mason. And it seems that the Benedictine monks, the Cistercians, were at the core of creating or had a large effect influence on these ceremonies and it wasn't for religious purposes it was because that's all the members knew they saw this they, they attended church regularly they turned to mass the ones who did and enough of them did so when they thought about creating a ritual it was kind of obvious that they would be influenced by the only rituals that they had seen and known done by these monks in the monasteries especially if they were converts and there was a ceremony for them to be introduced to that Benedictine order or the Cistercian order, or even the Knights Templar order. There was definitely a ceremony to initiate them into the order. And if you remember, it was St. Bernard of Clairvaux who wrote the rules, the new rule for the Knights Templars. And he, he was like right in the middle of promoting them, of, of being their hype man, basically, to the Pope. And then he created the rule and help, or helped create the rule. And most, more than likely, within that rule, helped create the initiation ceremony to welcome the new brother into the Knights Templar you know, organization. There's a definite connection there. And there's a book that I read way back, maybe back in 1994, 95, called Born in Blood, where John J. Robinson, the author of that, of that book, he talked about the connection of the Knights Templars and the Freemasons. 
how the Freemasons were the inheritors of the Knights Templars, their, you know, their, uh, the way they initiated people, certain symbols that they, that they uh, adopted, the story of, of King Solomon's temple, and, and all of these, he, he brought together all of these, I guess, circumstantial evidence, and he put together this book that was highly popular. It's still highly popular. If you ask anybody that's a big reader, that's also a member of the fraternity, they will inevitably lead you to this book. And this book, I have it. I have many copies. I've been given many copies. It is a great book. There are a lot of connections that, that the John J. Robinson made. And so there, what we forget, and he brings it up, but we kind of forget because we get lost in the story. What we forget is that the Knights Templars were Catholic. And so if you're talking about the Freemasons are the continuous continuation of the Knights Templars, then you're going to have to deal with the fact that the Knights Templars were Catholic or a Catholic organization. They were warrior monks. They were monks. And so that would mean that Freemasonry is connected through and through with the Catholic Church from the beginning, guys, from the beginning. Freemasonry, studying the origins of Freemasonry is a tough, is a tough assignment. It's fun. And becomes very interesting because of some of the other connections that people began to make over the years, way before I was born, way before any of us were born. You're talking about even... In 1717, when these four older lodges or six older lodges, depending on who you're, you're reading, got together in order to try and formulate this grand lodge system that hadn't been created or attempted before then. And, you know, 1717 becomes an important date. And then once... The Grand Lodge is created, and these lodges agreed, these older lodges agreed. Right off the bat, there were members already complaining about how the usages were already going out of style. Um, they, whatever the importance of Freemasonry had or was supposed to have, it wasn't the same. Uh, too many Masons are forgetting about their past. Uh, we're going way too far to the right or to the left of what is supposed to be happening in a lodge. It's the same complaints that are happening now. The, the only difference now is that we're in 2021. And they were talking about that in 1717. Where were they getting their information? And how did they know enough to make these statements? They, I don't believe that they were just making them up. So the origins of Freemasonry, as many have, have said, can definitely go back way further than what we can imagine, what we can believe. And evidences have been found. And as time goes on and this podcast goes on and I start bringing 
people on and we start talking about origins of Freemasonry, what they know about it, uh, history, symbols, and stay, keep that tight little focus exercising as well, of course, you know, because we're, we're coming out of this pandemic, we're getting back in, into normal life and, and you, uh, we're talking about Freemasonry losing some of its history and you can directly correlate that with us during this pandemic. Many of us, men and women, you know, lost a lot of our, our health because we were just sitting around in the house watching Netflix, Hulu, ESPN, TikTok, whatever you were watching, eating, stuffing our face, gaining more pounds than what we wanted. And now we got to work it off. All right. So our health, we lost our health, a lot of our health. And, and we got to regain it. Just like in Freemasonry, there's a lot of information out there that we want to get to, but I believe that it can get done, that, that it'll be more beneficial if we do it in a focused way where we don't bounce around. We continue to talk about one subject at a time, you know, for weeks and weeks on end, where, where when you go back, you can see the connections. You can see the connections. So this, this is episode number five. I hope you enjoyed it. Our next episode, I will be interviewing a member of one of uh, my lodges. Uh, he's the Worshipful Master. And we'll be talking about some of, some of this, what we just talked about. But he's going to be talking about himself, talking about his state of health, uh, what he does. Uh, to stay healthy, keep his body in shape, and hopefully a whole lot more. So I'm looking forward to it. For now, you guys have a great day. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and there's much more to come, guys. Thank you. This is Masonic Muscle, and you have a great day. Get out there and get some.